chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1. Here's what Paul has for us today. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believed something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins. Just as the scripture said, he was buried. Just to be clear, he was buried, he was dead. Some, some people will tell you, uh, skeptics will say he wasn't really dead. No, no, no. He was dead, he was done, he was buried, Paul is saying. He's reminding us of his death. It was certain, there was no doubt. And he was raised from the dead on the third day. Just as the scripture said, he was seen by Peter, and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than five hundred of his followers. At one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James, later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him, for I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. If you're unfamiliar with Paul, he was once Saul, and he went around persecuting believers of the way, believers of Jesus and the resurrection, until he met him on the road to Damascus. Verse 10, but whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me, and not without results, for I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet it was not I, but God, who was working through me by his grace. So it makes no difference whether I preach or they preach, for we all preach the same message you have already believed. That, that passage there, 1 Corinthians 15.10. I love the NLT because it's so easy to understand for us today in our modern English. But sometimes, if you're ever looking to get a more literal translation, some of the words that they were using, uh, if this is for your own personal study, you want to dive a little deeper, uh, I would recommend sometimes, you know, either look at the ESV or even the New King James Version. Uh, sometimes when you line up some of the words with the Greek, it's going to be a little more accurate there. That verse 10, I want to look at that in the New King James Version. When we read it here, I love it. I love the way they have it phrased, but it's just different. Here's what, the, here's what we have in the NLT, what I just read to you. But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me. And not without results, for I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. And it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. In the New King James Version, it says this, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's by his grace. Each and every one of us, we are what we are. It is by his grace. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. His grace empowers us. 
His grace empowers us in the life that he's called us to. If you feel like this life was a grind, if you are looking at his word and you're looking at it as a burden, ask for him to renew your mind. And invite him in in this moment. God, renew my mind. Lord, please give me a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. Give me a fresh reminder of the grace that empowers me to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. I was just talking about this with one of my friends in the church today, uh, about the difference between walking by the flesh and trying to live out His Word on our own. And it, it's a burden sometimes when we're just trying to do things on our own. But when we begin to listen and walk in obedience to the Spirit, we begin to, I mean, we are supernaturally empowered and we begin to desire to live out God's word in our lives. And all of a sudden, it's not a burden. All of a sudden, it's something we desire and we are chasing after with everything in us. When we die to the flesh and we live by the Spirit, we are empowered by His grace. There's a lot just in this first section that stands out to me. Go back for a second here. Um, chapter 15, verse 6. After that, he was seen by Peter, and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. There's so much going on here. Paul is reminding people, like, this is not a fairy tale that we put our faith into. There are eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And if that's you today, if you're coming in and there's, and there's some skepticism or there's some doubt, and you're kind of wondering, like, do I really believe? Is there enough here? How, how can I know I can trust these people that wrote these things all those years ago? How reliable is it? Uh, if you're here today and that's you, that was me when I first became a believer. Like I, I'm right there with you. I, I know what you're feeling. I know what you're experiencing. Because I, I, I have felt and heard the Holy Spirit speak into my life and call me into ministry. But the, the flesh, my mind, I had doubts. Because I don't want to give my life to a fairy tale. I, in fact, then if you go on here, like I, I'm not going to get to this verse today, but where does Paul say it here? Uh, I mean, basically he says, hey, if the resurrection didn't happen, like we are to be more pitied than anyone. Like seriously, we, we are. This is foolish. He's saying, you know, cut your ties, get up, stand up, walk out of here right now. Like church, we're done. If the resurrection did not happen, this is pointless. Go eat, drink, and be merry. We're not going to get to that today. We're going to get to that next week. But it is, I mean, it's true. If there was no resurrection, there is no point to what we are doing here today. And so he reminds these people, this isn't just a fairy tale. There are eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And there were people still alive when Paul was writing this. And so you could go, and you might even know some of these people. You might have heard their name kind of drop, and... You could even go and you could find some of these people and be like, did you really see him? And they'd be like, yeah, I saw him. I saw him. He was there. He's real. He's alive. He's not in the tomb. You could go and you could do that. Over 500 witnesses. And I, I know for me today, I, I, I still need that. If I hear something that sounds crazy or wild, like I, I need to see video or I need to talk to somebody that I know and I trust, and I need to get verification of these facts. 
before I decide that I'm going to believe or trust what I've been told. So that's what Paul is saying here. You, you can ask these guys or these guys, or you can find one of these 500. They are all still alive today. Well, some of them, a couple of them, they're gone. All right? So, once again, the reliability of Scripture. That's another thing. If you are, if you're sitting in that seat of you know, kind of doubt or skepticism and you're kind of wondering, you're not alone, first of all. Uh, you can go back to the very beginning, uh, John 20. After the resurrection, John 20, verse 24. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time, Thomas was with them. And the doors were locked where they were at. But suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas explained. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. That's us today. We don't get that same moment Thomas had. But there's still things that we can look to and we can see today. And we can find evidence in the resurrection. When you start to look at the New Testament, can we rely on the New Testament one of the earliest evidences that stood out to me as I was going through this, because I, I knew if I'm going to do ministry, because I knew I'd been called into ministry, I needed to know that this wasn't a fairy tale, this wasn't made up, this wasn't uh, some scam to get people into a building and, and, and worshiping something or someone that was uh, a liar. I wanted to know. And so I started diving into apologetics. And if you're looking for a uh, place to start, one of the best places I would tell you is The Case for Christ or The Reason for God. Those are a couple of great books, a couple of great resources. If you want to dive into apologetics, and it's just the defense of our faith. And so I, as I was diving in, uh, I haven't dove in on some of this in a while, but I was going back recently and looking at some of the evidence again. And it's a great reminder for why we believe that we can trust this book. So this book, in comparison to where we get uh, Roman history today, we'll go off that. Uh, the Annals of Tacitus was written 100 AD. Okay, so about 70-ish years after Christ. That's when it was written. The earliest manuscript we have that, and so they would make copies, these manuscripts. The earliest one that we have today was written in 850. A.D. So almost 750 years after. And we have 33 copies of that. It's pretty good. And we, we, we would count that as reliable and a, a solid source of history. Herodotus, another historian, uh, written 480 B.C. The earliest manuscript we have for him is 900 A.D. So the difference of, uh, I mean, I'm bad at math, uh, almost 1,400 years. Uh, 
We have 109 copies of that. So even a little bit better there. Uh, Plato, uh, written 400 BC, earliest manuscript 895 AD. Over a thousand years difference from when it was first written to the earliest manuscript we have. We have 210 copies of that. Uh, Homer, Iliad, was written 800 BC. Earliest manuscript is 400 BC. The difference of 400 years. Now that one, we have 1,757 copies. And so these copies, what they would do is they would compare each of the copies and see if there are any major differences. And so when there were no differences, they knew, oh, it, it had been kept up accurately throughout the years, throughout the manuscripts that were made over and over. And so they could see the accuracy and how it was kept throughout the years. The New Testament, written between 50 AD and 100 AD. The earliest manuscript we have is 130 AD. That's only the difference of 30 years. 30 years compared to 400, 500, 900, over 1,000 to these other manuscripts. 30 years. That's how close we get to the earliest time period. Copies. Anybody want to guess how many copies of the New Testament there are? These early manuscripts? Somebody want to throw out a number? Go ahead, just throw out a number. 3,000? That's pretty. 5,000? 20,000. Woo! Is that our Bible college student? Was that yeah. Stone? No. No? <laughs> Somebody back here. 23,769 written in nine different languages. And each one indistinct besides a comma or a period or none of the meaning has been distorted. They, they've kept it up to 99.9% .9 accuracy from the earliest manuscripts to what we had, what we still have today. That's supernatural. Just so you know, that is supernatural. That's Holy Spirit working and moving and sustaining God's word throughout the years. And it would have been really easy for people to go around in those early years as these letters were written to go around and fact check. And I'm sure there were people that did that. And they, they probably were searching out for these 500 witnesses or they would go searching out for these apostles and they would ask them, is this true? Is he risen? Did you see him? Is the tomb empty? And time after time, the answer was yes. One of the other things uh, that always blows my mind about that time period was he was not the only Messiah figure that had risen up and gained a following. You, you can research this, you can find it uh, in Strobel's work or The Reason for God uh, or any other great apologetics work out there. But there were other Messiahs that rose up around that time period before and after. And their followings, what would happen, it was the same thing that happened to Jesus. They would kill the leader of these followings. They would crucify them. They would, you know, wipe it out. After these followings, after their leaders were killed, you did not hear about these people anymore. They scattered, and they were done, and they were like, hey, you know, we weren't with him. We didn't know him. 
The same way Peter reacted after Jesus was in prison and under question, when he was questioned if he knew Jesus, what did he do? He denied him three times. That's what people did. When your leader, your Messiah figure, was arrested and killed and put to death, that was the end. You did not keep going after that. But something was different about Christianity. And let me tell you something, you would not die for a lie. You wouldn't. You would not put your life at risk if you knew it was a lie. Peter, he, he was a coward, right? Like, there's no way. He wasn't dying for somebody that wasn't actually the Messiah. And in his mind, what he saw, he realized in that moment, he's like, ah, he's arrested. This thing is coming to an end. I'm done. I ain't dying for this guy. And he was cutting ties. But Peter's life was radically changed. It's because of the resurrection. There's no doubt. He wouldn't have died for a lie. But when you've seen the risen Christ, that changes everything about your life. And so for us today, uh, I would tell you, if you struggle with doubt, if you struggle with skepticism, wrestle with it. But don't stop there and say, this isn't worth it. Keep digging deeper. Because if it's true, it's the most important fact in the world. And if it's a lie, well, we should all cut ties and go drink and eat and be married. Wrestle with your faith. And remember those words of Jesus. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. There's a blessing on our lives where we believe by faith that Jesus has conquered death, that the tomb is empty, and we walk forward in faith believing his word. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. But tell me this. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? Some of the people, the, the people in Corinth were saying this, that there would be no resurrection of the dead. For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. Alex, what you've given your life to, it is useless if Christ has not been resurrected and if there is no resurrection of the dead. That was what I was worried about. When I was digging in and studying, I didn't want to waste my life on something that was useless. That was my fear. But the more I looked and the more I read and the more I dug in deeper, I knew that this is worth giving everything to. This is worth everything. And we apostles would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. And you are still guilty of your sins. He's not been raised from the dead. We're still guilty of our sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. That's what I was looking for earlier. Thanks, Paul. He's got the right words. If our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. 
But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through man, through Adam, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone belongs to Christ will be given new life. Everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come. Where he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. Death has been defeated, but there are still rulers, authorities, and powers at work in this world. Paul reminds us of this all the time. In Ephesians, he talks about this. The dominion, the principality, the rulers, and authorities of this world. They're still being defeated. Verse 24, again, after that the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. That's what we can be a part of, church. We need to be a part of witnessing this victory over his enemies. We can see deliverance in people's lives from the enemies of this world as they give their lives to Jesus in full surrender and submission. As we do that in our own lives, we get to start to see victory in our lives over the rulers and principalities and demonic strongholds in this world. Some of you, you know this and you realize it's truth already. The longer you have walked in faith, the more victory you have seen. The more you have learned what it looks like to walk by the Spirit and truth in your life, the more victory you have seen over the strongholds that He tries to build in our lives. For revival, we want to see a church that walks in victory in every area of life. So if you feel like, man, there, there's still strongholds or there's still places that the enemy has a foothold in your life, once again, look at Ephesians. The enemy can have a foothold in the believer's life. He cannot possess you, but he can oppress you. So if there's some of you in here today, you have just resigned yourself to living under oppression, thinking this is just how it has to be. This is just what I have to go through. This is my cross to bear. No, no, no. He wants to free you from that oppression. He died so you can walk in freedom from the oppressors of this world, from these principalities. He wants to give you victory over them. The more we begin to walk by the Spirit and truth, the more victory we find. Don't keep living under these chains and think, man, this is how life just has to be. Like, you can find more and more freedom 
the more you surrender and submit to him and walk with him in this world. He wants to set us free. And so some of you here, you've been struggling with something in your life and you can't let it go right now. It's a relationship or it's pornography or it's lust or it's, it's a coveting heart. And you are never happy and you are never content. And the enemy, he is building up a stronghold within you because you gave him a foothold. And right now, Jesus is saying to you, you don't have to walk through this life like this. If you're ready for me to destroy the enemy's stronghold in your life, I will give you that victory. That's what Jesus is saying to me right now. If you want that freedom, let's pray for that. Here, right now, church, let's just pray. We're going to pray for freedom in this room today because there are people that have been, they've been living under oppression. So we're going to pray for freedom in some of those areas. Now let me tell you, one of the first steps you can take to loose the enemy's hold on your life in whatever area it is, is confession and repentance. Let's pray for that today. A spirit of confession and repentance for the church. So we can walk in the freedom he desires us to walk in. Father, we thank you right now for your son Jesus, that he, that he conquered death for us. And that he is still conquering enemies today. That he is still defeating the darkness today. And right now, I just pray for our church that you would give us boldness and strength to go and talk to someone today, to confess what it is that, that he's built up a stronghold in our lives. That area of jealousy, that area of desire, that area of coveting for somebody else's life for hating ourselves, for hating our own life, for hating who you've made us and desiring another life. God, let us repent in this moment of that and remember that you created us, that you loved us, that you formed us in our mother's womb, and that you've created us with a purpose, and you've created us to walk in your power through this world. And that we would carry your presence everywhere we go. And I just pray right now for freedom and confession and repentance in this area. That we would not see confession and repentance in this church as weakness, but we would see it as strength. And we would celebrate it and we would cheer each other on. And we would hug each other and encourage each other and build each other up as we come out of the darkness and release these things to you, Father. And we begin to walk in freedom because of confession and repentance. God, we desire that today. Soften our hearts. Break those chains off of us. Give us no fear as we go and we approach and we have some of these conversations with people today. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Some of you right now, you know, the Holy Spirit's already spoken. You need to go, you need to go and tell somebody. Don't leave this room today during this last song of worship. As the worship team comes forward, don't leave this room today without going to that person and asking for prayer. Don't leave this room today without going and telling them, hey, this has been a struggle, this has been a, a, a foothold that the enemy has gotten in my life, and I want to get free from it today. This is where it begins. There is power in confession and repentance 
And I'm telling you, the enemy wants you to sit right there and be comfortable and to just, he, he wants you to just walk through this life and just say, no, no, this is just my thing. I got to work on it on my own. I got to deal with it by myself. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I died so that you could walk in freedom. I rose so that you could walk in my power. I left so my Holy Spirit could come and dwell within you. The righteousness of God dwells within us. He lives within us. I, I'm saying this for myself right now, too, because there's moments of doubt and struggle where I, I begin to doubt whether or not he lives in me. And whether or not I... I The enemy just tells these lies all the time. You're not good enough. You never will be. You can't do this. You'll never see these things. But I'm believing for the miraculous. I'm believing for freedom. Because that's what God's Word says. After the end will come, when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power, for Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. He's humbling his enemies right now in this room. They are losing power over our lives right now as we begin to move in confession and repentance. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The scriptures say God's put all things under his authority. Of course, when it says all things are under his authority, that does not include God himself who gave Christ his authority. Then when all things are under his authority, the Son will put himself under God's authority. So that God, who gave his Son authority over all things, will be utterly supreme over everything everywhere. If the dead will not be raised, what point is there to be baptized for those who are dead? Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? Church, let's stand up and be finished here. And why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour? For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride when Christ Jesus our Lord has done in you. And what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those people of Ephesus, if there will be no resurrection from the dead? And if there is no resurrection, let's feast and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. Think certainly about what is right and stop sinning. For to your shame, I say that some of you don't know God at all. We know God in this room. And today we're going to walk in freedom. Because we know we carry his presence.